To the Crash Chords podcast. You really, really lost it like halfway through. Yeah, I can't even say the word <laughs> Velkomen. Velkomen to the Crash Chords podcast. Oh, I don't do accents, and that didn't work either. Yeah, I know, but it was better than yours. My you, non-accent. Your non-accent accent. Yeah. We're already fighting. It's terrible. I thought it was good. Oh, thanks, Steve. Yeah. Um, I'm, of course, Matt. I'm John. And I'm Steve. Um, we are going to probably jump pretty quickly into the, this week's album, but I just want to thank briefly at the beginning our, it's a fan request this week, and it was recommended by Star F. He is a rapper I have uh, become friends with and who found us through Shape of the Dark Lord, listening to the Epic Podcast, discovered our podcast, and has been working his way slowly through the backlog. So thank you for this recommendation. Um, and thank you for the 10 days of listening to us. Um, <laughs> Star- I, I hope you had snacks. That would be... That would be harsh. Um, Star F, of course, as I said, is a musician. He's on Bandcamp at starf.bandcamp.com. Um, he's another rapper. Um, I only say another because I listen to so many. Um, he's got some great stuff up there. I think two full lengths or three. I don't remember. Go check it out. I think his newest release is actually free to download. So go check that out and enjoy. Um, I hope he likes our review or at least is entertained by it, at the very least, if he doesn't agree. And he's a Minnesota native, correct? Correct. And if you don't agree, Star F, please tell us why in the comments I'm on just, the website. I'm just happy to fill in another state <laughs> That's in, our, true. in our very bizarre array of, of, um, mapping. of mapping popularity. Well, yeah. like, well, I'm going to get the crayons. I'm going to get the crayons. <laughs> What I like to say when talking about strange <laughs> fan locations is um, the Rose West, which is Robert's other band besides the Wasties with Alex. Um, they have a hardcore following, I think, in either Central or South America, like a measurable following. And they can't get there. But it just that's where the metal is, apparently, I guess, or the rock. So uh, Central things have changed in these or years. South America. I think it's South America. They're just talking about how the great World Wide Web and all of our interconnectability is bringing music to a larger scale. The more you know. I mean, it's... Ding! <laughs> that's <laughs> probably very true, actually. So I, anyway, our album this week is Jeff Rosenstock and the album We Cool. There's a question mark at the end. That's right. So and it's, it's, it's really We Cool. Yeah. Exactly. You, yeah. you mispronounced that. That's true. That's Inflection. Um, an artist I have not listened to before. I can safely say I think all of us had not listened to before this this recommendation. Yeah. Jeff Rosenstock was new to me. Uh, I am aware that he had a punk rock background and a ska background, which is interesting because in 147 episodes, we never truly tackled ska, and we still won't be. That's not happening today. So, uh, yeah, don't get it in your in your head that we're going to be doing that. Though Except do, perhaps in passing on this album. I do have a couple of uh, ska bands I'm sort of wheeling down album-wise for later this year. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. All right. So they're, they're in the hold. Um, but also, uh, Jeff Rosenstock was the front man of the indie rock band Kudro before embarking on his solo career, which landed him only one album prior to the one that we're looking at today, and that album was duly titled I Look Like Shit. <laughs> That being said, he's been making music for 16 years now, 17 years now. He's got to start back in the late 90s. Quite a 90s. while. Yep, late 90s. I believe one of the first uh, build is 98. 
so he's been around for a good long time. And the a sound reflects that decade of starting music. I mean, it's that influence of 90s culture and music is definitely in this record, for mm-hmm. sure. You Even can, from the outset. Yep, you can see his roots, you can see where he landed. And shall we begin? Sure. So track one is Get Old Forever. Um, and the minute it starts, it kind of really sounds like this coffee house rock, you know, acoustic guitar guy, kind of garage bandy, low quality, lo-fi. I think it would be somewhat glib to define the opening here as anything other than your standard indie rock acoustic intro. There's yeah. really nothing. Speedy. It is speedy yeah, as opposed sure. to the more mellow that you get in a lot of coffee houses. It, it seems like uh, we're all, we're maybe a couple of cups of coffee already into it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's and, a good way to put it. And he's speedy with the lyrics too. He jumps in right up front with the verses. And one thing worth noting here, just uh, tonally, apart from the whole indie rock sound, is how kind of distant his vocals sound. Almost as if they were this, or just these first few bars rather, were recorded from a camcorder at like an outdoor festival with a very, very pared down sound system. He sounds distant just for those first few bars and then all of a sudden we have a transition to a hook which is much more rich and filled out with uh, a full on drum box. So it was an interesting little shift that he did right up front, kind of playing around with their expectations early on here. And they were really tight drums. I did enjoy the drum work, the percussion work going on here. It it was a good complement to what the guitar was doing. It wasn't anything special, though. It wasn't anything really too unique yet. The drum reminded me of a lot of... Because he seems of an era of, like, indie artists, even if he's not particularly indie in nature, although I'm, I'm guessing there it's in there somewhere. It reminds me of most indie hip-hop kind of, indie rap kind of drum machine sound. You know, it, it mixed well, but it definitely reminded me of that kind of indie rap feel, at least mm-hmm. percussion-wise. Absolutely. Um, also to mention something about the chord progression here, because and this is this uh, is relevant to the intro as well as this section. I kind of enjoy the whole like six chord progression at this point. Um, I mean, as always, that's a sort of a surefire way to make your melody seem more engaging without necessarily being expansive. It can kind of repeat the same melodic motifs for emphasis, but the chord motion gives us this sort of un- underlying fluidity, such that you're more likely to be drawn into his lyrics as you would like a full sentence structure. That's what you get, especially in that intro before the drums even kick in. And uh, let's dive in here. I would like to, because he's pretty upfront with it, we might as well be upfront with it. When your friends are buying starter homes with their accomplishments, drinking at a house show can feel childish and embarrassing, with people glaring because despite what the advertisement said, malt liquor doesn't make you young. That's right there in pretty much the first few seconds of this album, so he pretty much states exactly where he's coming from. It should be mentioned, he's 32. It seems that age is kind of an important factor here. I mean, it, this is the, the sort of the caliber of somebody looking back and also seeing what other people are doing at their own age. Um, and there seems to be a lot of repressed issues coming out pretty early on here. It seems like he's acknowledging this idea of, oh, you know, I'm I'm a starving artist, and look at what my friends are buying with their accomplishments, you know? Yeah. That kind of a thing. Well, later on, when he goes into, oh, a fancy thing into the future, thumbing through a rain cloud of reminders, and it's a death trap, so I want to get smashed before we get an inch off the ground. I'm not sure you want me around. He's already <laughs> being down on himself at this point. Right, but now back to the music for one second. I did notice that in that second stanza, which happens to coincide with the, the drum the drum box sort of stepping it up, 
a little bit harder to see through it all. It seems really more that in that section, it kind of like clouded what he was trying to say. I'm not sure there was really any intent there. It seemed just to be kind of a mixing problem, which is a bit of an early, it's an early moment to start critiquing on those grounds, but it kind of takes away from the compliment that I gave it early on in that, you know, for the first few bars there, you feel as if uh, that sort of background vocal style, that sort of distance while uh, the chord progression is just keeping going there. It seems that everything was bouncing out there to really promote these lyrics and make them audible within those first few seconds. And that's, that's a real power to, within the first few seconds of an album, be really paying attention to what he's saying as opposed to really diving into the texture. But then it seems he pulled back from that uh, when the drum box stepped up. It changed its character, therefore you shift focus. And that to me is a bit of a problem in terms of texture progression. Well, there's also another semi-problem that comes later on in the song, and that is the weird shift into the punk part. So that happens about a minute in, and it so it doesn't even just jump into a hard, heavy punk sound, which it does, but the volume steps up, like decibels volume. Like Significant it's not, decibels. Like it's it, not, that's because of that, that arc there. In the beginning, his vocals are are apparent because everything else is low. And then all of a sudden the drum box kicks up and his vocals sound really, really low by contrast. And now it's like, because of the full-on stage punk style, his vocals had to be turned up to compensate. And I don't know, there's something a little sloppy about that to me. I mean, also it's just the volume increases. And if you're not expecting it, it can, like it threw me off at first. It really did jar me as just being loud. Right, um, with subsequent listens, of course, as with anything, you can get accustomed to sure, it. Sure, of course. And then it made me sort of start to perceive the track in a different right. Uh, because if you consider the overall arc of this entire track, it's sort of your quintessential all rise, mm -hmm. like front to back. Yeah. There really is not much of a recession except a little bit later, but as a whole, you're basically taking the journey to, to I, I wouldn't say to the top because the lyrics don't suggest that, but rather to the bottom and with more intensity, with more angst. Yeah, and that seems to be his goal. Kind of plummeting almost. Exactly. And I'm not... I don't have a problem with all rise. Definitely not. Or all drop in this case. Yeah, I have all a, angst. <laughs> I have a I have an issue with that transition though. That second transition from the drum box guitar work into that punk. It's a little bit too abrupt. It it just doesn't feel it just feels natural. Harsh. Forgetting the the volume change for me, it really is just a harsh change in genre. Well, let's look at some of the things that you do get. I mean, it, it, to be honest, judging from his background, this is really more up the alley of, of what I was expecting from him. I mean, this is full-on heavy rock. As I said, the drum box was really replaced by a full drum drum set, which mimics the drum box pattern, but because you get the reverb, it sounds much grander. Uh, alongside that, it's a lot of straight power chords, and then it builds to another really quintessential element of punk, and that is that sort of upbeat emphasis, that sort of... You, on the two, on the four. So you don't feel it on the downbeat as you would normally in pretty much any other pop song. The, the, one of the main characteristics of ska and punk is that upbeat emphasis. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this song is the usual mix you kind of got in the 90s of something that kind of sounds upbeat in nature, but lyrical content denotes otherwise. Exactly. And I mean, that was pretty common in the 90s. It's pretty common now. I mean, honestly, we see that all the time. It's not uncommon for someone to do that. Here we're getting a... Mostly energizing, mostly upbeat kind of an idea with the punk, with the drums, even with the original acoustic guitar, coupled with just sort of like a depression, a, a, a very just sad idea of a guy kind of reflecting on his life and going, eh, I really messed up. Well, not even that. It's more like, I'm not so happy with my lot in life, but I'm only to blame. 
I mean, one of the interesting things here is actually that probably what I would consider the peak, uh, musically speaking, the most danceable section is in fact where he cites one of the most pressing lines. Um, a little bit earlier on when he says, breathe in deep and debride your life, this is the chorus, stale regrets are a waste of time. Only one thing remains sec secure, that we all get old together and we all get old forever. And right there, it's actually really fun. Like, that's probably one of the most danceable sections. It's it's juvenile, but it's fun. It's not it like... It sounds bleak, though. Yeah. Although it can't be danced, though. You have to skank to it, because that's what they'd be doing. Skanking is dancing. Yeah, but, you know... It's, it's a specific form. Very specific. Dance broad, skank specific. And I'm narrowing it for the sake of our audience. All right. All right. From here, I think it's a good jumping-off point to the second track of the album, which is You in Weird Cities. And this track, I mean, for me, kind of just reminds me of the essential pop punk of the late 90s, early 2000s. Like, it reminds me of all of those kind of bands. It kind of is, I don't want to say formulaic, but maybe predictable a bit. You gotta have to go back in time, though, and rather back in your age bracket. I mean, apart from just simply being punk and ska, to experience this track is like turning 14 all over again. And I didn't even listen to this stuff when I was 14, but... It's interesting because the twist here is that it really paints a picture of the pain of adulthood and the sort of like sad reminiscing. So it's kind of a strange thing he's doing as a 30-something. He's using a more teenage avenue or something of the caliber of the time, rather, to paint what he's feeling as a 30-year-old. It, it, it's weird. I mean, but it kind of works more from my artistic standpoint. Otherwise, you have to take it within the realm of getting nostalgic or rather this being a throwback kind of a, a track most of these tracks can be throwback in their way but this one seems to lean back harder phil's living up in chicago maddie's working hard in ohio fitzy and chris are very far away johnny and eric are in michigan we try to see each other whenever we can but there's only so many days that we can stay well, yeah, everybody goes through this sort of like explosion of friends from high school or college area to back where they came from or to where they're going or something like that. It's pretty much upfront. Everybody left me. Well, and the <laughs> connective tissue is the previous song where he's talking about how he's not happy with his lot in life and comparing himself to other people. Now, the next stage is obviously he stagnated where he is, hasn't left, and everyone else has. It's kind of the natural progression for the line he was going down. It's also kind of interesting, considering that most people around that time, it, it's something that everyone kind of notices simultaneously. Like, usually it's not just one person that necessarily has stagnated. Everyone might feel that there's something they didn't get to do. Or, like you said, they're stuck in, in comparisons, and they're just simply getting... They're reminiscent. They're getting nostalgic for that time in which they were young and they had almost... Uh, constant access to their friends and they could go out and hang out on a dime but now all of a sudden things are difficult because that's the nature of you know moving through that late 20s into the 30s is people get married people move away people get jobs that will consume their lives and you just can't live the way you used to live and i think the lyrics and the sound really convey that i mean we've got faster guitars here harder drums it definitely is a little more intense than the previous track i even like the way he just kind of like compliments it in that classic you know dance ska punk fashion phil's lipping up in chicago bump bump maddie's working hard in ohio bump bump it's so it's like he's fueling all of this uh all of this this angst and 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 pain and and regret with a, a, a danceable style something that is very very easy to kind of like jump on board with it's just if you take that one little next step and actually read the lyrics this is a very painful track um 
I, the clash, I believe, is wholly intentional on his part to sort of fuse these two things together. It's another case of irony. You're going to find that in most of these tracks. But this one really does hit harder. I mean, one thing that I didn't love about this track, I mean, so we mentioned the instrumentation briefly. And like I said, fast guitar, hard drums, it kind of picks up. But then the midpoint of the song, there's a breakdown that kind of slows it down. But it becomes kind of anthemic. And I don't know, like... It is a very well-used trope. Yeah, but it's but still a trope. It works here because okay. that slow down was definitely the more enjoyable part for me. I like the speed, but there's really nothing going on in the first part of the song that's really unique. It it, it comes across as sort of like a punkier version of What's My Age Again with a little bit less emphasis on the drums. It's not doing anything too out, out of the box here. But when the slowdown comes, it does become a more enjoyable piece, so it's still not breaking any boundaries. There are some things that I would like to note up front. First, first of all, like within the first few bars, the first thing I had to note was the bass. I mean, essentially it's a steady rumble. Of course it's nothing complicated, it's, it's just some fast finger-picking pretty much in one note, uh, but the result is this like nice steady sine wave from the bass amp. It's kind of, it coats the, uh, the grounds beneath beneath the dance floor, essentially. Um, so I thought that was enjoyable, in a, in a pinch. Uh, secondly, I did enjoy the lyrics in the chorus. I mean, it's still extremely juvenile, but that's the point. That's inherent within what he's trying to do. He's just trying to use juvenile means to approach something that is what he's experiencing as, a, as an adult. I'm always getting high when no one else is around, because nothing makes me feel anything's worthwhile. Nothing makes me happy. I'm like a bratty child. Nothing makes me laugh. Nothing makes me smile. It's not brilliant songwriting, but again, I believe that's the point. To use this sort of like angsty teenage poetry, and we find this a lot in what we do. Whenever we come across uh, an, uh, an artist that's trying to sort of reach back to the past, they, we usually find that they're pulling all of these, you know, high school era poetry or Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield wordplay, this kind of thing. You know, it's it's just dripping with angst. It wants to, it wants things to be the way it wants to be, and yeah, that's a little harsh to read, but it's also relatable. It's relatable for a lot of listeners, um, surely. Even though I was never a particular fan of Catcher in the Rye, and I never really could relate with that much, I, I always think it's helpful to take these things within uh, with a grain of salt, and sometimes. Uh, you know, maturity is what you'd rather look at. But in, I don't know, in these kind of tracks, I still, I still recognize their goal. So I can't, I can't really fault it for that. I think it's still successful. Well, something that you get a sense of from the beginning of the album that becomes a through line for the whole record is there's, even though there are tropes that are coming up and we're hearing things that are very reminiscent of stuff we've heard before, he's in this whole hog. He's committed to it. There's a passion behind it. It doesn't feel empty or soulless. It doesn't feel just delivered. At this juncture, anyway. It feels very sincere. No, that's the next thing I wanted to mention, his vocal delivery there. I mean, as he sings those lyrics, I'm always getting high. There's this, like, scream and, and almost feels like his voice is actually cracking, as if he were 14 years old. Now, yeah, it could just a... be that he has that sort of natural middle-range vocals and he's doing this all on purpose, um, or perhaps that he just has that that vocal style. I don't know. But it, it comes across as a 14-year-old that I feel that those na that's no accident. It's almost his inner child is starting to rage for all this sort of stuff. Yeah, he's putting even... himself back in the time because he wants to, he kind of, like he wants to emote. And well, what better way to do so than tap into your hormones raging? But then when he gets to the slowdown, we're talking a whole different genre, or at least a band style. 
if if the first part was a matured version of Blink-182, the second part becomes a very almost iconic Weezer kind of a slow jam. I guess. I mean, that kind of is more apparent in the next track. I think this just mostly sounds like the slower side of punk pop, uh, pop punk, which... You know, is still Blink-182. I mean, they would have breakdowns like this in their songs, too. Yeah, I didn't have comparisons at this point. I agree. I think it was just really a nice slow jam here. And it was helpful in contrast. Because I will admit, despite the despite uh, what I did praise, I think, about the artistic approach with the earlier sections, it can get a little tiresome. And, of course, it's been done. It's all yeah. been done before. I mean, I... I, I, I I think it's hard pressed to really re uh, reimagine the, the musical approach in in a in a wildly new fashion. I see what he's doing, and he's obviously pulling from music from his youth. Well, that's fine for reference purposes, but especially the the uh, the sort of like rich dance style here. I don't know. Something about it was just a little bit sweaty for my taste. I don't know. That's the best word I could describe it. Like I picture a mosh pit here, and something is almost a little bit uh, out of place, out of character there. Especially considering that he is really trying to, I think, tackle a more mature concept, which is realizing realizing what things that you can't control. Yeah, but I don't think moshing immediately denotes immaturity. But when you combine that with his vocal style and the fact that he's kind of like cracking at the edges there, as he says, anything's worthwhile, nothing makes me happy, I'm like a shitty child. I mean, this is all just... I, I think a lot of the, these connotations are of immaturity. So I think I, so, but I think it's also a hint a little bit at comedy within tragedy, like delivering the lines the way he is. You know, oh, sure. it, it, you can't help but laugh at it, especially the way the, the lyric you just delivered is, you know? Yeah, no, it, I was laughing throughout. Yeah. I mean, it really is the question as to how much should I be laughing here? Because then he pulls something really, really beautiful uh, by contrast, and that is this, this instrumental, um, where all of a sudden you can hear everything distinctly. It's a lot more smooth. Uh, the, the vocalists in the background, I remember you did uh, initially describe that as a little bit tropey, but I think it actually just blends right in. It sounds actually as if the microphone was just displaced toward more of the front of the theater, and you can hear the, the vocalists um, more in the backstage, just kind of like seeping through. But to hear them in distance is actually a cool uh, acoustic effect. Yeah, it really gave the song more character. And also the song doesn't stick around that long. It's about a little less than three minutes. And, it you know, it moves at a nice pace. Even when it slows down, it's not... It's not overstaying its welcome. Yeah, and then to follow that, uh, it pursues a hook that essentially follows along the same exact pattern, um, which then kicks it up a notch. And here, I noticed the guitar entered in, which has absolutely some great comping within it. And I, my, one of my favorite moments was actually within this track, despite, you know, kind of struggling through the initial portions. One of my favorite moments was here during this final, like, breakdown, where the, all the instruments pull back for just one beat, and this lone guitar just rings out and is held. And I, I thought that was absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's it's it was a really cool retransition style, especially if you're going to uh, play out the song in this um, brash fashion. Uh, it was a really nice breather for just a moment. So it was a cute, a cute composition. Yeah, and the the track, um, a lot of the tracks on this album transition pretty well. We'll get to more specific uh, points later. Um, but I want to move on to track three, which John hinted at style-wise. It's called Novelty Sweater. And, of course, if that Novelty Sweater might remind you of Weezer, the song Undone, the Sweater song. Well, I don't think this is an accident, because from the moment the drums start, we get instantly a wash with Blue Album reminiscing from Weezer. It definitely gives that vibe. It's even before the drums, that deep, deep swaying bass that's going, just, just playing around with the line, is the sort of thing I would have expected at very early in the career. 
uh, which would have been when he started making music. It's it's the same sort of era that he's working with. It's fairly gritty for that reason. It yeah. has it has uh, the we- Weezer's grittier tracks, I think, plastered all over it. Uh, we're in six eight here, and it's true the bass just with this like constant repetition again provides a very uh, very rich grumble to just you know build the track out of. Vocally, though, I had some personal reasons for liking this, which were completely extraneous. I kind of thought of TV on the radio as this was playing. I thought that the the vocalists themselves, both the falsetto and the tenor, sounded almost exactly like Kip Malone. And it's weird because that put me back in like 2004, 2006 territory with um, their albums Desperate Youth, Bloodthirsty Babes, and also Return to Cookie Mountain. I, I, I felt that through this. One of the more out-of-place things, I think, on this entire record. Granted, that could just be a connotation there, but it seemed like everything was much much richer for that purpose, because there were a lot of a lot of dynamics in those vocalists. Well, and also, to be clear, too, I'm sure TV and the radio was affected by Weezer at some point. I mean, I, th- I can see similarities between both bands, for sure, even if they're not a direct... In certain tracks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, out, And then from there, David said it kind of attached... Tat- tacked on the uh, experimental electronic side, but yes, I could see a lot of very strange, unexpected fusions occurring there. Um, And there's no shortage of electronic tones in this song, too. We're getting more kind of interesting mixing here and some post-production kind of... um tonal work that's really interesting and it, it's a little midi yeah it's video it's, gamey in the sense that it, it follows a midi kind of scale and it does sound kind of pared down but i like the kind of effect contrast. it gives yeah it's, it's the contrast, contrast yeah. with uh, the fact that we're kind of only really now hearing these midi noises becoming very prevalent but at the same time the 1990s to even like the earlier 80s which he references in one of these lines back in 88 uh it is when this music was being made for video games. It's a weird combination of things going on right here. Uh, I like. Oh, I think it. that's a little after that, though. I mean, you know, we're pretty much already by that era. We're pretty much already out of that territory. It would be it would be nostalgic for the time. I think. Yeah, it's 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 a combination of a, a bunch of things going on. That's I think doing a very solid theme for this song. Uh, see, to me, it was a little bit extraneous. I only just interpreted it as color. I mean, granted, of course, everybody. You know, we had an interesting discussion just last week about how you know people would use words to have certain connotations here, but it seems to me that like gaming is just forever what people are going to associate that particular synth sound with um i just interpreted it as color along with many of the other uh pieces of color here for instance the guitar screeches that's really prevalent here it came across to me as almost avant-garde um everything isn't just really gritty here it's almost malignant one thing i would like to backtrack to just color one argument i would make for that is i think it's fitting very well with the scene that the lyrics are painting it starts off stuck in a room clutching to an aching womb, my mind like a trap. In the same state I was in in 88, left up, falling back. Oh, so he makes the reference He actually the makes time. an 88, if he's 32 now, that would put him at about six years old, which would be, for me as well, like first-generation game consoles are starting Nintendo, to hit the shores. Yeah. You're six years old, you're starting to actually get those games if you're well enough to actually be able to get a Nintendo at that age. I mean... It's, I think it's a very appropriate reference, and I really appreciated it for that. I thought it was a nice little artistic choice. It we're also intricacy. But we're also six years prior to the first Weezer album, so how does that fit in? Huh? Well, no, it's, it's <laughs> thinking <laughs> back. It's a lot of box. nostalgia going on here. This is also, just from those lines and the way he's talking about it, I've been daydreaming under a novelty sweater, stinking of fear. Starting again, starting it all again, leapt. My life is like a trap. This is really starting to delve into... 
a, a person who thinks he's a failure. His mindset, Inter- his interior his sort of, uh, internal madness, almost like yeah. this, this self-deprecation. It it gets a little repetitive lyrically, and that was my one real gripe with this song. But I see that spiraling nature of. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. My life is like a trap. Thinking well, of fear. Yeah, and repet- my life is like a trap. Thinking of fear. That kind of just circular logic going around and around and being stuck in that area. It worked really well. And since we're comparing, I mean, there's the same the same angst is present in Weezer's work, especially back in the Blue Album, yeah. and even more in, in in Pinkerton. I mean, and this channel some of the same uh, effects, the same trudge as Weezer, the same kind of like off color harmonizing as Weezer and uh, angsty vocals. Yeah, and I think emotionally, like that circular logic really applies. I know when I go through something traumatic that really upsets me, it's the only thing I can think about constantly for hours to days, you know. It's hard to not go over in your mind those really terrible things when they happen. So if you're really down on yourself or just really depressed, you're going to overanalyze yourself and repeatedly analyze yourself. And I think that's conveyed very strong in this mm-hmm. track. I should also mention the instrumental here because this was this was special to me. This occurred around uh, a minute, 45 seconds. There was this effect on the guitar uh, that sounded like a synth, very much so, but it seemed to be just a guitar that was patched and true to form as a punk band, they never bothered with the keyboards. Instead, they just choose to like use the guitar for pretty much every effect, uh, much like the joke about how keyboardists essentially replace bassists for most roles. So, such as the hierarchy of egos on stage. Yeah. <laughs> just... But what I like also, this song and the next song does that, does what I'm about to mention. He doesn't, he sticks within a decade or so, but he doesn't stick in one genre. He kind of jumps around a little bit, and it gives a variety, which I really appreciate. Yeah. In track four, Nausea, the whole intro to the song is piano rock. It's Ben Folds in nature. It's still that 90s sound, but it's a different structure. It's still in the realm of pop on the overarc, but it's still something a little different. And it's got something that I really, really love him for doing. The off-key vocals. He's going full yeah. off-key with some of the verse work. That's just really, not just appropriate, but really, really great artistic choices. Which is why, bringing back your comment, Matt, uh, this to me is a better example of the comedy that I immediately got here. Mm-hmm. And didn't really have to like squint in any in any capacity. Uh, I, For instance, I heard the Ben Folds almost immediately, and I figured this was just flat-out parody at times. Now, it could be that we're just in different places with this, and well, you saw the Weezer as a parody, whereas I thought it was slightly removed well, I saw it, Ben Folds as being a little bit stronger here, but especially like when he hits that that high note within this track, it just it screeches so sloppily into the falsetto. Undoubtedly, an artistic choice, but you know, on those angsty grounds, that works here as well. Considering that Ben Folds also had that sort of flat delivery to a lot of things. Um, granted, of course, he would probably taper off his vocals in a slightly more musically appealing fashion, but he's going over this mark here, Jeff Rosenstock. I appreciated it. And there's not a doubt in my mind that Jeff Rosenstock has some comedy in this. You know, I mean, there is comedy in some of the depressing lyrics, but also on top of that, I just want to mention, Ben Folds wrote some of the most depressing songs in the 90s. So Absolutely. To, to, I mean, Brick still makes me cry. That song, and so this is, I think, going in that vein for sure. Mm-hmm. He he starts off with that really, that really f- almost fun, like, piano, and he couples it with... Held in a bong hit, sitting in a hot tub in South Wisconsin, I feel amazing when I'm alone, switching between porn and RoboCop. (laughs) I mean, right away he's making a lot of references. Yeah. That is, yeah, it's sad but funny sad, ha-ha sad, the sort of sad you look at 
for a sad clown. Yeah. It makes you feel better, but it, obviously this is not the best place for the individual experiencing it. And there's more comedy that steps in here with the chorus, because then all of a sudden, what do we get? Almost like theatrical. Uh, it, it's much more ambitious. Um, it's as if all the actors just like got together for the singing, very much like a maybe an 80s rock ballad. But then suddenly, halfway through the chorus, sudden end. Yeah. Out of it. Just mid-phrase, we just exit the chorus. We end on the beat as if it were just halfway through a single musical phrase, and now we're just back to the verses. Like like they just pushed the piano back on stage here. So, a lot of inherent comedy, as if as would be done in vaudeville almost. And that is actually appropriate, because when he reintroduces the chorus a second time, it's twice as long as its first rendition. Right. He goes into a whole nother section. That's another really solid choice for working within the genres he's working with. But when he leaves that first chorus and goes into the second, there's also the saxophone. Yeah, that was the um that was the instrumental that followed the the second chorus. Um very very jaunty at that point. I yeah. love the saxophone section. It almost it's the kind of thing that made me again ring true a little bit closer to ska cuz we haven't had much ska on this on this album. Again, even some of the sections we described as ska could really be closer to punk than anything else. But then when you hear those saxophones, well, that's going to bring you back in a bigger way. And I really loved the chorus in this track also. I mean, it had that kind of almost marching feel, rallying. And the interesting thing about this, though, is that, again, we have this all-rise kind of feel, but not. It's, it's, this is the falling into the depression. Lyrically, that's where this song is going. This is going deeper and deeper into that depression. Yeah, I didn't think so much get an all-rise. As, as in this case, it's not so much, you know, volume changes. It's not so I much... I meant emotionally that it's, an, it's moving towards it, something. Well, it does develop. Yeah. It has... This is a, a very sectionally rich track, because then even following that, then we get another verse, which is actually pared down. So it's not all-rise in, in terms of that. We actually re retract right here, and we have a... A uh, section which is just the verses, where we have the vocals and just pure piano. No drums here, much thinner. Um, and I noticed that in this section, his vocals get even more scratchier than they were in the earlier verses. So it's in that sense, you're very much correct. There, he's he's like losing himself. Cleaned up the empty bottles, let the smoke out through chilly windows. I used the stationary bike. I watched the end of The Price Is Right. Ordered an egg white sandwich and I drove south through midday traffic and I called up some folks I truly love and hung up after they said hello. And I like how that's that... that's that heartbreaking moment that really got it for me. It's always heartbreaking to me whenever you follow like the minutia of life. I don't know when that's what you're left with and you can clearly see that it's in the aftermath of something fairly detrimental. Called yeah. up loved ones and hung up after they said hello. That's just yeah. like that's that's a that's almost movie level trope right there. Yeah. But it works so well within the framework of how he's working it out. And then the the final chorus has sort of like an O's going on in the background, which it, we kind of get a church choir effect. Yeah. It, it was it was a very interesting motion for this track. Um and over that, I got so tired of discussing my future. I've started avoiding the people I love. Evenings of silence and mornings of nausea, shake and sweat, and I can't throw up. I got so tired of discussing my future that I walk through my life like I'm the only one with evenings of silence and mornings of nausea. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and then on top of that, it does this. It pulls the same exact uh, trick that it pulled earlier. Uh, halfway through this, it just ends again, as just the first chorus did. Yeah. So, it there's kind of almost as if that were meant to like hint towards some kind of inevitability or or lack of control, especially like you're just being pulled out of something, um, on a moment's notice. So. 
Yeah, you see where he's coming from, and I, I personally preferred this artistic approach a little bit better. Well, I found it to be sort of the highlight of the beginning part of the album. Definitely. But talking about losing control, the next track, Beer Again Alone, delves into that a little bit further. Well, yeah, but if the last track was falling into the depression, this is where we're dwelling. We're steeping in depression at this point. But you can also tell, even from title alone, that this is a more on-the-nose track, yes. both in title and, and, and lyrics and in form itself. It's There's something, first of all, a lot more country about this track. It, well, begin, it, starts it with begins with the hook um, with this sort of like home-on-the-range kind of harmonica, yeah. and then from there it expands into a more grander rendition, which is still very much just a flat-out drinking song. Well, it's got that acoustic guitar paired with the harmonica, which rings of any folk or, or country track you can think of that Absolutely. has to do with drink, drinking. And when they actually get into the restatement of this guitar-harmonica combination, it rings of Dropkick Murphy drinking songs, yeah, which it is... It takes that more Irish which kind is of feel. exactly what I, the, the Dropkick Murphys did, was take that folky noise and make it into more of a punk-oriented it's sound. It's the pairing of the acoustic guitar and the electric guitar that really gives that feel. It also had to do with something else. It felt as if he was putting on an accent for these lyrics only time in this entire album where I, I, I felt he was doing that, but just in the opening, opening verse here, spent the whole weekend in bed, summoning all of the garbage within, to skate figure eights in my head, but he doesn't quite say it like that. Instead, it's more like skate figure eights in my head. It's like he puts on a little bit of a brogue with this, but then again, part of it almost sounds as if it's really just like Americana, but a little more casual delivery. I don't know. I don't know exactly what he was going for, because again, in the beginning, this struck me as almost like a country track, but then I, I definitely could see, I see the Irish in here as well. Then again, for whatever cultural reason, most people tend to associate drinking songs as being Irish influenced. But I, I don't know. I, he wanted to fit a setting here, so he changed up his vocals for the purpose of it. Well, also, simply put, at least when it came to uh, punk and pop punk and, and folk punk and all of that stuff, like Flogging Molly and Dropkick Murphys kind of perpetuated that drinking song kind of a feel and so if he's doing some kind of baroque there's not a doubt in my mind that there's an homage to that especially since they were also popular in the 90s to the 2000s i mean with some of them still pervasive careers flogging molly and some without like dropkick murphy's so you know it, it it definitely rings of that and i don't think you're wrong to see that as far as emotionally though we're getting really dark here like we're, we're kind of diving into the inner psyche He's definitely alone with himself, and, and a drinking song will do that. I mean, most drinking songs, even if lighter in nature, they secretly have something to do with something truly dark. There's also some camaraderie here, almost True. inherent within any drinking song, is because, well, most people really want to drink, I think, in public. Yeah, they don't want to drink alone. prefer not to drink alone, so really there's a contrast here, since most lyrics hint at him being alone, but yet, when you're in full hook, you know, it feels like you're just swaying, you know, put your arm around your brother's shoulder, uh, despite that he's very much alone, so, I don't know, it's, it's like a rendition of what he of what he wants, I think, as opposed to what he has. Yeah. Well, talking about what he wants late in the song, so I wait a few hours for someone I love to come home, to stay awake for three hours at most, that I'm drinking beers again alone, all alone. Yeah, I'm drinking beers again alone. So, yeah, but also, meh. I think the camaraderie is coming across with the drink, with the beer itself, with 
the subtle hints at alcohol well, that's going on. Well, also musically, it does have a more camaraderie feel, but the lyrics for sure are dark, solo, and depressing. And I think that's kind of further dichotomy that he's been doing in the album. He's kind of been doing that a lot, that kind of dichotomy between music and lyrics. Yeah, but there's just something, I mean, there's even something like uh, some dark comedy within that. Because oh, sure. these kinds of songs were never written around, um, around just... Drinking alone. Yeah. They, they, were, were around. they were written around being at the bar and pulling your whole cheers lifestyle, where it's sure. like, oh, okay, you could at least talk to the man who's down on his luck down at the end of the bar. But it's kind of weird if you think about just playing a track like this alone in your boudoir. That's sad. That's yeah. really sad. Well, the it whole One thing to be, that's like a virtual bar. Well, this is the first case I really see him taking the actual idea and turning it on his head because in the previous songs while we are definitely doing a, a a death spiral towards depression so far on this album here's the first time he's really throwing the theme work he's built on its head the previous songs have already been used to do exactly what he's doing it's just the irony is in sort of inherent these are things that have been done before this irony is because of the the heavy flip he's doing on a drinking song being about anti-social behaviors. Also, the one-two punch of track four and five together really kind of give the full picture. Yeah, it was a good follow-up to Nausea. Yeah, they, they really did a worked a good job to complement it. Yeah, but I also can't, you know, considering we keep making the Irish references, I still have to say that the meat of this track, I think, is grounded more in country than it is, you know, in, in Irish uh, folk. For sure. Especially think... when you reach, like, the second verse, you know, there was those that guitar steps in here with those, like, those rich bends that really, like, you know, almost... It's cries along with every single guitar bend, every pitch bend. It's just in in tears, and that's so indicative of country. I mean, that would, that steps in in almost every single country track. So I don't know. It's he's kind of. Then again, he's perhaps that's just as much of a culture out there as it is over in Ireland. Everyone loves drinking. Well, I'm and also sad too. Be, beyond that, too, a lot of those bands like that I mentioned earlier, who weren't you know influenced by a pop punk kind of thing, they also were influenced by that kind of acoustic guitar sound. A lot of those drinking songs have roots in folk, too, which is related to country, and it's all wraps up together. Sure. So I it, think there are thre threads of all of that in this song. It's really just he's picking and choosing where he wants to be in the musical family tree. Sure. And if we had a drinking alone song in track five, track six, I'm Serious, I'm Sorry, is one of the best drunken apologies I've heard, or best worst drunken apologies I've ever heard. Well, I really liked the intro. The bass guitar intro here was very, very soft. It was down to earth, and that was sort of a overall volume shift on this album again. Um, slight accent, like on the downbeat and the second quaver of the second beat, and then also the fourth beat itself. I really, really liked that pattern here, uh, just to start us off. But he does kind of lay a lot down uh, in the opening verse lyrically. I didn't know that he got in a car crash. We could have been friends. Could have been married, could have had grandkids, sent them to college, or at least attended each other's weddings. I didn't know that you stayed home for hours, calling his parents, asking for answers, skipping your prom night, crying and praying up to a god that you never believed in. That's a lot to lay on. That whole first verse hit me like a Mack truck. Yeah. It really did. And, like, the idea of putting everything out there, like, it's not even... It's not even about just friendship. It's all of the options. We could have been friends. We could have been lovers. We could have been married or gone to each other's weddings. Like it's just that huge scope of how how crushing that news could be mm -hmm. it was really emotional and painful. 
And then the aggression steps up because when it goes into the chorus, we go from this light guitar work, low end style, into something that's just really, really full of uh, vigor. It, it's full of vigor, but at the same time, it's also more like a slowed, intensified heartbeat. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, I really like the shift here. It was so much more rounded and replete with these like low register guitar pulses. And they don't pulse very quickly. Like I said, they pulse very slow and they just sort of, you know, crescendo and decrescendo. But that really serves to bolster his lyrics here at this point. Megan held your body while you were sobbing at the party and I couldn't leave the kitchen. I ingested too much poison. <laughs> I mean... Apparently, life's been a bitch. Yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, talk about an emotional song, not just in the lyrics, but the way the music goes from that kind of dashboard confessional kind of acoustic indie style to a, a, a it picks up in speed a bit and goes back more towards the lighter side of pop punk that we've been getting. It just, and the song progresses almost to give this breaking point. I mean, his vocal style evolves earlier in the track where he's kind of just even to the end where he's almost screaming the lyrics but not in a in a hardcore kind of a way and more of just a angry aggressive kind of a way well talking about the aggression were you supposed to not go to college stay in your mom's house on the computer googling grief cures talking to no one waiting for life to start feeling better waiting for pain to not be a constant waiting to feel like anyone's honest Waiting for me to stop being sarcastic because I can't accept, because I can't accept, because I can't accept all the bad things that happen. Yeah, it's... That's, I mean, that's really just railing. Here's, yeah, he's railing. This it, The tracks tend to get more and more on the nose. Then again, I don't think they were ever really you know off the nose. From the very beginning of this album, he pretty much knew what he wanted to convey. Um, he conveys it so far. He conveys it so far. It really is just a question of avenue. For instance, in this track, I liked certain sections. It didn't really... The music did not hit me like a Mack truck in the same way. But then, no. of course, you also have to consider the pared-down nature of the message. So, I'm serious. I'm sorry. Yeah. And you know, it really is like he's taking a, a, a distinct step back. And unfortunately, the music, uh, apart from some of the, the moments I, I mentioned, I, I don't think they really hit me with the same vigor as the lyrics do. I think this is just a story that you have to take and and, and accept and, and sort of, uh, I don't know, swallow whole. I don't think it's the kind of thing that really... I don't know if you can capture this kind of thing. It's so personal. Can you capture it in music? It's tough. And that's why I think that's kind of intentional in the structure. I feel like the lyrics are supposed to hit you like a truck, and you are supposed to kind of swallow it down. That's why the music might be so pared down and kind of not as emotive as the lyrics, because they he wants this to be uncomfortable. This is not designed to be enjoyable. It's designed to exist and convey. Well, well I did enjoy the instrumental, as always, and sure. I enjoyed uh, his tendency to really contrast uh, the bass parts with sort of like this high, tinny uh, range uh, guitar. I really, really enjoy that. I think that's just, I don't know, I like using your palette to, to the fullest extent. And he leads us on probably the saddest note of the album, Oh, I swear I'm sorry that I saw you at the party, that I stood there saying nothing while you wept before your new friends. Oh, I'm, I'm serious, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm serious, I'm sorry. <laughs> I love the way that ends. It's so, de I don't know so if, bleak. I don't know if you would love it. <laughs> I love the bleakness of it. I love the... It, it, it's coming off as sort of a rambly, drunk-fueled apology or the after uh, after yeah. party after morning you've finally sobered up a little you found out what happened something bad happened it and now you're trying to make up for it if that's it, how you see the arc i suppose that would work it emphasizes the regret the loss 
and the regret in just that final line. Well, from there, we move on to track seven, Hey Allison. Now, this was a lot more clear-cut punk. Yeah. Um, I did appreciate, though, that his vocals were cleaner, uh, as opposed to the more gritty-style punk where vocals would tend to be a little bit skewed, but I don't know. There was something about this track that was very, very straightforward, and the verses did not grab you in the same way. This is another case where you have that emphasis on on beat two, beat four, so it's that upbeat, you know, pattern, but I don't know, the vocals... But they were a little, they had a little less character despite being very clear. I think the change to me really came in the chorus. In the chorus, it's not as if it's anything terribly complicated. It's simple. Hey, Allison. Hey, Allison. And then the, the, the accents within this and really holding that last note, it just has a more, a more longing nature to it, despite the fact that not really a lot is being said, but at least on this part, I believed it more than I did in the verse. Yeah, and I mean, also the song structure-wise is not, super unpredictable um it does ring i mean it has great guitar and drum work as as far as the structure goes you know it's nothing breaking ground but later he plays around he plays around especially with that chorus again the city's a total disaster without you around and there's a stutter going on with the the music itself a stutter with the notes themselves that does a great job of accenting, and he brings it back with the second rendition of the chorus. And the this, second chorus, I noticed... This is the, something different, though. Well, this is quite cool. The, 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 the melody itself is actually doubled by the guitar uh, in, in, in the second chorus. As we go later on, though, um, into sort of a third chorus, which actually comes out of an instrumental, a very brief instrumental, where you get these, like, dueling guitars, one left ear, one in the right ear, both doing their own thing, the one on the right is a little bit more color-oriented. And then, all of a sudden, this expansion on the melody takes place, because out of this, we get the chorus, and then finally, it, it, it kind of extends the previous melody. It goes into a secondary phrase that we did not get in the first two renditions, and here it's doubled by the vocals and the guitar. One those, of those two guitars, the one the left ear, steps out of what it was doing in more of a comping fashion and joins the melody. It shifts, it just sidesteps, and it doubles alongside this much more, uh, much more gripping uh, secondary phrase or it's, phrase B, as it were. Especially when he hits the note and the him and the guitar are just completely paired up, working together. His his mimicry, it's hard to actually hear the two at once. They're perfectly in sync. It's, it's gorgeous. Great. It's great. Well, I don't know which was written first, but the other side definitely figured it out real quick. <laughs> well, it's not as if it was done as a solo. It was flat out written. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's just... That's that's really good composing right there. It's just in the course of this perhaps 15 seconds. And then the song doesn't go go on much more beyond that. It's a shorter tra- a track on the shorter side. I think one minute and 50 something seconds. And it feels short. It does. This is the first track that really does feel its length, and its length is short instead of long. Instead of you know not really sticking around and overstaying its welcome. Here, especially with what he was doing towards the end. I kind of would have liked a, a, a longer burn with the outro. It does uh, seem as around if this been is fun. It's a more succinct message, but it's also a slightly more vague message in this track. Um, I'll just read that that verse preceded. You spent the days inside avoiding social landmines that poke at every bruise. Is she going to write back to you? You're an exhausted kid of fractured relationships. You want to crush that gloom. Is she going to write back to you? Hey, Allison. This sudden detachment from the friendship is making me ache. Mm, it is still pretty concise. It's still pretty succinct. It's just, it is true. This seems, it seems odd considering he went into such detail with previous songs, but I guess some things don't really need much more saying. What was more odd though, 
is like we were starting to get a sense in this track that it felt like a little bit that something was missing. We enjoyed it on the whole, but a little bit. In the next track, I feel like it's exacerbated a bit. Uh, Polar Bear or Africa is the name of the track. And on a whole, like I remember it's my first time on the album kind of going, this kind of just feels regular. It doesn't feel like there's anything else here. That is a, that I think is probably the, a much better way than I could put it. Feeling regular, it comes across as sort of a punky wall of sound kind of an idea. The sort of thing that you would tend to expect from punk bands in general. There would be just one of these songs on an album. We do have that Weezer similarity, but it's like Weezer without the punch, it seems here. Uh, as if it were one of their throwaway tunes, almost. Um, once again, we have that upbeat, uh, upbeat drive. Uh, plus a more walking bass style here. But it was really pretty bland until the instrumental. It does seem as if it just kind of like copped out in this track to me. You know, because the thing is, within these confines, I feel like what we're really looking for are the standoutish moments. We're looking for things within this framework that we're all very familiar with, you know, having spent time in the 90s clearly and being surrounded by this stuff, to have a 2015 album that pursues this musical avenue they need to wow me in the in the in the compositional approach that occurred in the last track, just toward the tail end there. Be great if you did it over the whole track and we had some tracks earlier, but some of this stuff just pales and then it seems as if it's just one of the pack circa ninety six, you know, ballpark it. And the problem with this, which is what other songs made up for when they didn't have these wow moments, his vocals aren't quite that same level. They aren't the main character. There's a little bit of bleed over with the wall of sound that's going on around it. You don't get the same punch. You don't get the same like storytelling element that he has been building so heavily. Because of that, the content is kind of lost. And this is one of the wordier tracks. This is one of the more like, cons- like thick tracks when it comes to the actual things he's saying. As I desaturate the fertile greens, I want to tell you that I don't perpetuate these western schemes, but I can't stop laughing at the short-sightedness of childhood dreams, where we're all young astronauts. The truth is, it sucks being young and in love. When you're old, you're just bummed that you'll never be happy enough. Yeah, I want that. I want that apparent in the music. Something we always come back to is that a lot of times we read great poetry within this, but that to me strikes me as more of uh, of a a free stream of consciousness than anything else. But it still comes across extremely poetic. But using the framework of, of the melody and the structure here, the verse and chorus is just so formulaic, I don't know, nothing promotes those lyrics in such a way. Melody's not strong enough. Well, in the previous tracks, we've been wrapped up in his lyrics. One way or the other, we're kind of brought back to them. The, the music brings us towards them. Even if music isn't super standout, it directs us back towards the lyrics, and we get kind of wrapped up in them. Here, this is the kind of first time, because the music is almost ubiquitous, the lyrics kind of fall into the sound. Mm-hmm. Um, there are highlights with some electronic tones, which I thought were interesting and nice pepper work. The but... instrumental, as I said, it was pretty bland until the instrumental. Then it gets a bit stronger uh, using those that 8-bit sound effects, which seems to be a running, uh, a running music theme, at least yeah. on this album. But you can't really say much more for it than that, other than what John was proposing with the 1988 reference. But, you know, that the, all that is is just... It, it's. It's like a muse more than anything else. It just kind of like serves to step out here and put you in a certain time frame that is really more ambiguous than it is uh, clarifying. And also, I didn't get a strong sense of emotion in this track. Whereas- Not till the end. I did receive it by the end, especially when he goes into, we're going to give him a trip to the hospital. We're to give him a, the bill for the funeral. 
We're going to give them the debt from our student loans. We're going to give them what's left of the shit we owned. Well, yeah, that right. bridge part was really, really nice. It, it did pick up a little bit more. It's showcasing his vocals again. I just kind of wanted that throughout the song. He does keep this promotion of his vocal, of his story, throughout the next rendition of the course, and with the outro lyrics. So what do we get for the friends we've met and the ones we love at home? Yeah, what do we get for the friends we've met and the ones we've left alone? And, he, and there's repetition, and it, it, it does have a longing bit along with it as well that I, I do enjoy. He's, he's doing a, a bit of emotional work. It's coming a little late, though, in the song. Well, yeah, we get more emotion in the end of this track than we get on the whole song. And I got more emotion in the instrumental. <laughs> right, but what I'm saying is the instrumental came later, too. It was the tail end of the song that we really got any kind of substance. And then it was kind of the same case with uh, Hey Allison as well. Yes. Uh, also tail end work. But at least in this one, after those last lines that John cited, a, no a single note is held. And that uh, note drags directly into the next track, Hall of Fame, track nine. And they build a trudging guitar work over it on that same note. It really ties the songs well together, even if I wasn't so on board with eight. <laughs> and for uh, perhaps our third track now, uh, we have... Yet another Weezer comparison. I mean, I do hate to walk through these tracks and constantly make comparisons here, but... It, they're it, so apparent, though. They're very apparent. I mean, maybe it's also because it's, I mean, it's not exactly in recent memory. If you want to check out our review of Weezer's uh, Everything Will Be Alright in the End, check back to episode 116. And this song does ring of a more modern Weezer sound as opposed to the older stuff we were citing before. And, I, I mean, yeah, I wrote the logo instead of just even writing out Weezer again. It was quicker that way. It's for simple reasons. It's just a heavy, sort of bass-driven, eighth-note kind of pattern here. Um, it, it kind of has this sing-along. It's one of, as if it were one of Weezer's more sing-along tracks, you yeah. know, as if they're kind of swaying back and forth. Um, but there really wasn't too much else to note here. One of the main things I noted, for instance, was the guitar solo uh, with this sort of, like, you described it, I think, as a lingering guitar solo. Well, because... It's kind of, Almost as if it, like, makes love to each and every note. It well, really has fun with it. It's reminiscent of what Weezer also does with their guitar solos. They don't, they, they're not shredders. They kind of take their time with their guitar solos. And if they're going to do something interesting, they kind of make it well. They, they drag it out. They don't, they don't just rush through it and shred guitar. And that, this is very similar. They took their time with this solo, which gave it an intricacy that we hadn't really heard before. And they take their time with the song. And, okay, the one part I do have a big complaint here is the nature of the lyrics. While I wrote off the repetitive nature of novelty sweater to work within the framework, here it's sort of like the same rendition of the same idea with a lot of repeated lines over and over again that really aren't striking here. Lyrically, it, it's probably the weakest track on the whole album for me. And that's a little bit of a downturn, a little bit of a letdown to have it this late in the album to really see like uh man you were doing great stuff what happened see and to me it's not so much even repetitive within this as it's repetitive for uh, a theme on the album it's repetitive thematically because one stanza reads getting drunk all alone in a quiet hotel room you repeat all the most shameful things that you've been through it dawns on you that it's true fucking nobody loves you the only thing original here is essentially just the the realization well, that's pretty harsh, especially considering I don't believe the realization is true. I believe there's a sense of delusion taking place here. But the, the setting is all the same. The setting is still uh, him thinking, dwelling, ruminating, however you want to put it, and thinking about the past. That, that still, that's been true for most of this album. And, you know, it's, it's tough to really divvy that up into uh, 
12 perfectly succinct um, individual projects. He does, of course, manage to make um, them original in their own way, but some of them kind of bleed together in their own way, and he covers the same subject over again. Well, some might argue that's elemental in dwelling, is that you're going to repeat the same subject over and again because that's what your brain is doing. But an album, especially in terms of musical approach, that's that doesn't work so well. Then you just, you, you wind up actually doing what a lot of people do in sitcoms, and that's over the course of seasons, no longer relating with your character. You almost want to say, eh, get over yourself. Um, I don't want to make that claim so harsh. It's really more of a, it's really more of a musical, uh, uh, a musical observation than anything else. That's what I feel is, is getting a bit repetitive. I feel like we come a little stronger, though, back from this problem, this rut we've fallen into when we go to the next track. All blissed out. Here he's, he's, he's dredging through the, the, the everything to create some very, very interesting vibrations and coupling them with simple, short... The only way I could describe them are trapped vocals. Like, they're behind something. They're caged up somehow. Just starting from the very beginning here, because this is important, he brings in new elements of texture that I absolutely adore. Almost this, like, Irish portside accordion. Uh, despite the fact that it's actually sort of broken up with these really like harsh decays at, tail, at the tail end using electronic means, um, unless after all it was just electronic to begin with and maybe wasn't an accordion at all and it was just synth. Still, it's a fascinating use of. Um, it almost sounds like that reverse time effect, like like things are just being played and then in, in reverse. That's why you get the harsh decay. We, we've come up come across this uh, quite a few times recently, and that's kind of how this is composed, although in a much longer fluid sense. It doesn't sound like loops necessarily. It's accompanied with lots of overlays very, very keenly. A little bit of piano steps in, um, and it exists in this very deadened major chord. It even sounds like there's something like a theremin playing in the background, um, plus also several layers of high falsettos just saying very little. Um, sometimes not saying anything at all, just gliding across everything. Everything here is just gliding. So, of course, all blissed out kind of... It is a saying when you're on some kind of drug, you can kind of say you're all blissed out. Mm -hmm. And these sounds, being warped in that fashion, give that emotional state, feeling like you're sort of on drugs or you're at least a little out of it. And that, plus the vocals that John mentioned, that kind of sound recessed almost, give you this kind of internal struggle sound that's reminiscent for me of a track on Schaefer's album that also had, he's faux drunk or actually drunk singing as if he's under the influence. And this narratively does the same thing. It's almost like he's trapped in a glass box. It's that mm-hmm. kind of reverberation. It's very sharp, but so muted, it's, it's just not bleeding through. And the lyrics go, I've been trapped inside a sharp mental picture of your heart, waiting for me to come home, but I can't get home. That gets repeated, and then it, it outros with, might as well be no one, no one. Repeated almost to the point where you can't understand what he's saying. And uh, this, if I'm not mistaken, is following a fairly harsh shift uh, closer to the three-minute mark, um, where all of a sudden this, <laughs> we get heavy crash cymbal material. We break completely from the entire structure being built up to this point, and now all of a sudden it's just thrashing, uh, crashing on every single beat, um, and overlapping with that final line, might as well be no one, no one. I mean, this is just ridden with angst at this point. I just want to give credits where credit's due for the reference I was making earlier. The track is by STD is called Empty, and that track actually almost ends in a similar way. The by Shape tra- of the Dark Lord. Yes, uh, I said that, STD. 
Okay. Well, you know, not everyone knows the acronym. I That's fair clarify. enough. Um, but no, it does. Like, Empty ends with him, like, talking about drugs and drinking and then him the sounds of him knocking over bottles and yelling at the track to not fade out on him. It's the same idea of this narrative of being within this haze that yeah. the sound conveys. So narratively, they're very similar. And I think that's very interesting. You don't see that a lot of a, a, a substance abuse related track that goes into that narrative. And I like that just because it, it's a strong conveyance. And before we talk musically, the next track, which blends right into it, The Lows, lyrically starts with cliche malaise in a dumb conversation, predictable drama for 5 a.m. exits. Fridays, the, they only pick up the recycling, so thank God it's Monday because I'm useless garbage. Hmm. Whoa, okay, we're right back into that very dark depression. I'm enjoying the high school imagery that's going on here because it's very fitting for his theme work. And he, he it's, it's there. He knows the cliches. He mm-hmm. knows everything that's going on. First word, cliché. But this is contrasted by the tone here, which yeah. is much more lively. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, we have, you know, irony just... Oh, really, again, on the face, all the nose irony just plastered in every single track. It's called Lowe's, and what do we have? It's more like a swing guitar style. Very close, very clean, in contrast to the rest of the album, which has been fairly gritty up to this point. Um, but, and also, one other thing, uh, the organ here is a, is a new element, but I think it provides a really, really nice background for the whole entire song and makes this far more lively. It feels, this is a track that really comes across as an indie rock track, just, just uh, out of the gate. It doesn't, I don't really get those same, like, punk, angsty, uh, vo- musical vibes, or as we would associate them. Instead, it really all seems fairly modern, fairly uplifted. Well, the guitar just is given freedom, and it has... A slight off-key nature to it. It's not quite off-key. It's not actually hitting the wrong areas. It's it is in tune, but it doesn't always take the direction I think it's going to. Some of the notes are a little unexpected, and because of that, it breaks up uh, what could have actually become a kind of monotonous uh, melody going on, keeping it fresh throughout the whole song. It's, it's very noticeable, and especially with the feedback stutters in the chorus. That's another aspect. The guitar is actually allowed to break form and just get like that heavy whine in the chorus to really punctuate every word that's coming out. Mm-hmm. This is a track where we really get we really get this sense of him kind of breaking ground as far as within the structure of his own album. He's kind of... This song progresses in a way that other tracks had not progressed. There's a development here and a growth within the track that we haven't really seen since the beginning of the album. And that's not a bad thing necessarily, but it it definitely, for a song called The Lows, we're getting more highs as far as evolution in the track. And that, I mean, can just reflect a acknowledgement in kind of realizing how low you've hit. There's also an inherent simplicity in this track. I mean, just in terms of how you can kind of get on board with it a little bit more easily and how it sounds a little more modern. Uh, even in the bridge, you know, which where it kind of retracts back to just purely the beat. It's just a single, you know, one, two, three, four. There's no inner inner play going on there. It's just the beat. That's it. That's all you get to kind of just channel you out of this... Uh, of these of these lows as it were and the vocals meanwhile are almost more freestyle they build to a scream in a sense um which though cliched is really appropriate at this juncture all the things we collected and thought would remind us of the people we wanted to be pile up like bricks in a poorly made tote bag that's doing its best not to burst at the seams but sooner or later coffee mugs and magnets are going to come 
crashing down onto the streets, and you'll stand there holding the tide from your eyes saying, Stop! Wait for the good times ahead of me. I can't think that the best is back of me. Clean up the shards of ceramic or leave them for someone who needs it. That's re- that's really nice work right there. And that is stri- great lyric work right there. Very strong imagery too. I mean, this song just packs a punch that we we were alluding to with All Blissed Out. I think it was leading into this narrative arc for the tail end of the album that I really like because we're not there yet, but the next song the final song on the album connects to this. But what I really like also about this track is it doesn't linger. It moves. It builds. Like that bridge that you were talking about, there was nothing there that I didn't see coming, but it was only because it was the natural progression of this song. And it's not predictable in the sense that it's boring. It's predictable in the sense that it's building a structure or narrative musically that they hadn't really done before. There was even the feedback outro of the chord being yanked once again, but... While that is one of the biggest like punk cliches I can really think of, it's perfect for the song because A, he introduced that, that, that element earlier in the song in the chorus itself, and B, that plug-pull kind of an idea works so well with the final lines. Yeah, stop. Think good times are ahead of you. Stop. Think good times are ahead of you. This isn't the end. We'll always be friends. And we'll smile like we're falling in love when I see you again. Well, ain't that happily deluded. <laughs> yup. And, and and he just yanks out the cord. Well, the best part about the yank, cord yank also is it's not a cheapo fade-out move. It ends. It, it, you get that static, and then the song ends. Dead cold, which we didn't really get a lot on this record. Mm-hmm. And then the final track, track 12, Darkness Records, or Darkness Records, because he doesn't actually say it in the song. Uh, and it, they're both spelled the same way. <laughs> Um, it really kind of gives you this cold feeling when it starts again because it just it was such a harsh end and then we start from nothing where there'd kind of always been some overlap or some connecting piece this kind of starts cold it's almost like a wraparound here at this yeah. point I mean it's just that guy in a guitar much like the character we had in the very beginning using this using the same uh, acoustic approach as yeah. we had in the very beginning the with whole him first... sort of a little bit more in the distance as if he's not really you know mic'd up terribly close. There's some, at least some distance there. There's a little bit of ambience. It also um, has some elements of the more speed orientation that we started with in track two, You and Weird Cities, mm-hmm. that was another, like, almost throwback kind of an idea going on here. It's the, the self-doubling, the subtle bass, and the high electric guitar. The subtle bass, the high uh, electric guitar that comes in later complements it very well without actually changing the nature of that acoustic guitar much. And it it works just perfectly for me. What I also really love about the self-doubling that you mentioned is that when he doubles himself after the first couple of lines of the first verse, it's almost almost unnoticeable because it's very they're very similar but what makes it interesting is it gives that internal monologue kind of hollow headed echo well, almost as a, if he's talking within his own head there's dual personality uh, written all throughout this album yeah. I mean it does seem as if he's very conflicted on one hand well he's a, a, a mature man looking back on his mistakes and realizing them as he goes and on the other hand he's right back there in the, in, in the thick of it and he's making the same mistakes um, and he's sort of doubting himself as a result Consider the first verse. Burn my Mona Lisa. I would like another chance to put stars in her eyes, fire pipes in the sky, and brass knuckles on her hands. She can breathe. She can see when you're not watching. Throw away my letters. I would like another shot to put a shine in your smile, make your nights worthwhile. Like I'm with you, and when I'm not, I disappear and reappear. I'm made of magic. Oh, this is another one of those cases where it's like, I see the desire... 
but I don't think it's possible at this juncture. The emotional connection at this point is this want for a redo at the simplest notion. It's yeah. this idea of, can I please start over? I mean, imagine the most traumatic moments, a harsh breakup, uh, uh, the death of a loved one. The immediate first thought, or one of at least the five stages, is this redo, this want a chance to do it again, denial. This is absolutely denial, and it's strong, very strong. Like, he's plowing through it. This just the idea that he needs a second chance. There's no other option. And this is captured no, for, no, no better than the, fo the, the following vocals. Shred your photo albums. They're not going to save anything. Petty moments in a grave. Toss your newborn baby. He deserves a better path than an ambient dream filled with Vicodin dreams, predetermined to relapse, spending weekends in the bath. He can breathe through the cheeks of the tauntaun. Well, that's a little heavy-handed toward the end there, but frankly, I really like some of the imagery put forth there. Even the idea of applying a redo to, you know, tossing your newborn, no, your newborn baby because he deserves a better path. Ah, uh, it's just it, making making analogies from graves to photo albums. This pretty much captures everything about uh, nostalgia, redo, inevitability, and the whole kit and caboodle. And that's not the only thing. The art of the music changes because that that uh, that verse shred your photo albums is almost a noise rock section. It's so like massively there musically. Yeah, there's this rapid drum roll that sets in. Actually, there are really several different progressions in this track that I think capture some of the best of what we had earlier. I mean, this is following a great transition to this, like, walking upright bass feel, where the melody is, is more of just a simple high register single line and the melodic guitar, but then out of that, we really do go full force into this, uh, I would probably call it noise rock. Um, it's all drum roll at this point. It, it, it really changes up the whole style and, and shape of the role, even after a few bars. It, it's And it's, that's strange, actually, to focus in just on the style of the role, you know, as if you were in, like, a drum line, for instance, um, and, and using that as texture itself. And there's not usually a lot of emphasis on roles. They're usually just uh, used in acute little intros to phrases and outros. But then, out of that, we go into something completely different entirely, a very kind of meek outro, I think, for this track. So what's fascinating is, yes, this very intense bridge that we're talking about yeah. completely drops out. All that clutter disappears, and we get what sounds like a clarinet and a flute, either one or the other or both. And mind you, this is before actually returning to the intro verse uh, yeah. in that acoustic style, just to get that last phrase in there. And then finally, we're left with no more vocals uh, for the entire tail end. And you're right, it's clarinet, it's flute, it seems like chimes in the background, There's and strings, strings. it sounded like either a cello or a viola with a very like rough horsehair, the kind that you don't get that nice smooth bow. Instead, it's 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 broken apart and muffled and and filled with its own pain. It's got, got this kind of dark lullaby sound for the outro. and kind of wraps up this track's namesake. I mean, between the lyrics, the, the clutter we're talking about, this horribly dark outro, darkness, record, darkness records or darkness records, whatever it's supposed to be, that darkness is definitely here. I'm it, inclined to think this, that's definitely intentional too, considering that there were a lot of references to even listening to music earlier on. References to listening to old albums that remind him of old people in his life, and those could very well be the darkness albums, the albums that bring him down that path, but also that darkness records and it never the forgets. The pictures, throwing them out, exactly. throwing, getting, throwing your baby away, like yeah. th these records of life and existence mm -hmm. it's probably both the ambiguity the ambiguity is definitely intentional and it just it, it 
and it makes for a very meek ending. Very, very depressing. Uh, What else can you do but go out quietly? (laughs) It also hints at, while not only has the main character screwed up his life, and screwed up the life of the person he used to be with, his love, who jumps in and out of this theme work, it also hints at uh, uh, a, a child with that newborn section. A child he really never got to know. He's almost like a deadbeat dad and reveals this at the end. That may very well be just simply uh, an analogy he put forth, but yeah, You know what? You never know. know. You never really know with these things. And that's the nature. It's nicely shaded. It's nicely just wait a minute, did he screw up somebody else's life? A third party's life on top of everything else? How bad of a person was he earlier on? Yeah, it makes you sort of like, sort of reanalyze I think the album in such a way that we we have referred to many of these tracks as being fairly on the nose because we kind of get the, a very clear sense from the beginning of what he's going of of the kind of thing he's going through but not exactly what he's going through he manages to keep that vague instead we just get a lot of references dropped here and there um the the breadth of which is still fairly yeah vague and I guess I I want to take this one all right I said a couple of times. <laughs> No, I'm not going to put it on you, Steve. Not every week. It's been a while since I really enjoyed punk. I don't know if you enjoyed this, but I didn't enjoy it to like the be-all, end-all. Ooh, it's something new. It's it's a new electronica sound. It's a new take on uh, a classic rendition. It's not new in the sense that it's the sort of thing that I, I, I come to expect. This album really is a lot of what I come to expect from the genre. It just really does a good job of exemplifying the genre. It does a good job of making it nice and clear and working well within the framework. It's got a great story going on here. The theme is solid. The arc is solid as well. Through and through, it has very few hiccups. Hey, Allison is a bit of a hiccup for me. Polar Bear or Africa is a big, a bit of a hiccup. And Hall of Fame, those, those three tracks right there were definitely one of the one of the lesser parts, the lesser part of the album as a whole. It it that big dip right there, it does recover from, but without that recovery it would have killed the album, honestly. He does a great job of bringing it back. And he does a great job in a very artistic way of keeping a very simple sound song as opposed to a lyric heavy song in a lyric heavy album with all blissed out. So I'll give him props for that as well. All said and done, though, it's still just punk, just indie. There's just the stuff I know. Nothing new. A little bit of extra items going on, but nothing really new. Nothing groundbreaking. Like I said, it's really just the best of its field. For that and the fact that I, I, I really connected with it lyrically, and you know how I love my stories, um, it's a four. Nah, no, okay, it's a 4.2. We're going to go a little bit higher, because it really is a great punk album, separate from the story. It's a really great theme album, separate from the music. So yeah, it's, it doesn't push boundaries, but it meets the boundaries of what it's working within. I'm going to agree with you on theme and most of what he captures. I'm going to agree with you also on uh, genre, and in that 
in that I think he really does manage to make this tighter than perhaps it ever was before. I I think that the thing with punk with me is a lot of times it's a lot of scattered concepts, and I understand a lot of it is about getting something off your chest at the moment, thus you have to go into that angsty state in order to really channel it, thus things are bound to be a little bit scatterbrained. But, I don't know, sometimes to me that's just not the more challenging art form, it's to do something in the broad. Well, he does do something in the broad. Now, while I don't think it necessarily reaches a concept album territory, I understand that's a much tighter thing, much more intricately linked. I do believe we are much closer to that threshold on this case. Uh, I like the way he had an idea right, right from title down. We cool? I think that's I think that's really a nice reduction, frankly, of this whole entire concept, and you have to you have to stay on board for the journey. Um, now, in terms of genre, the key thing, even despite the fact that I agree it, agree with with what you said, John, and that he he tightens up everything, there are little holes here. There are little holes that I think sometimes he could have better fulfilled in areas of this album by utilizing techniques that were a little more alternative, a little bit more um a little bit more experimental. But obviously this runs to this runs to issues. Well on one hand, maybe he would manage cutting through to our souls like he did in some of those most gripping sections, the sections that we're fascinated with, but also we we have a hard time relating them, except in an ethereal sense, the outro being meek as it were, without with very few words to accompany it. Instead it's just meek. Well that is very evocative, but that also takes away from the other half, which is his goal is to reach back through youthful music. So unfortunately, it's elemental in his concept to use these techniques and use these styles. I can't help but think uh, of, again, an album that probably was the closest to this style, and it also seemed to reach back a bit, um, which was Daryl's Ohio back in episode 114, which was about uh, one of the lead singer's life growing up in Ohio, as was told to us by the fan-recommended album, and the fan was Jose, um, and we got to learn a lot about that, and also through Mike Lamb, the drummer who commented on the site. So that was uh, that was very enlightening and, and linked up with some of what we analyzed and some of, and didn't link up with some of what we analyzed. So, but there we got a much vaguer picture, and in some sense, I almost picture, despite that that album was from 2004, that this maybe is what, had they been a little more uh, mature in their approach at the time, or had they been older, had they had the foresight of someone in their 30s as opposed to their 20s, that maybe they were trying to aim at an album like this. Something that was tighter, but still utilizing um, the nature of youth and the inherent angst of youth which will bring together old themes. Despite that, he's an excellent musician. I think he knows his genre very, very well. This album is just flat out about dysphoria, and it's a very specific dysphoria. I think you need to be along for the journey, and for that, and and the moments in this album, which, though sparse, they appear, and they're strong. I'm going to stick with John's original rating of a solid four. So, for me, this album actually reminds me of a different album, only because of how crushingly depression depressing it is and that's how crushingly aggressive and depressing hide the kitchen knives was by paper chase the relation here is how it's not a specific narrative say your shape of the dark lord sick passenger or um you know future islands album which we saw a very strong narrative and here I, I agree with Steve, there's a strong narrative, but it's not a flat-out concept album. But it's closer to that end than not. And it's very reminiscent of the emotionality in Paper Chase. 
However, I actually enjoyed this record. Paper Chase for me was anxiety-ridden, horrifying, and unnerving. I couldn't actually enjoy it. It made me upset and anxious, which is what it was going for. Here was more relatable. I didn't. It didn't make me anxious. I related to the anxieties of the of the narrator, of the author, of of uh, Jeff in this case. More importantly. It's a genre that I grew up with, very much so, and it dabbles in other genres I enjoyed or have come to enjoy. So for me, there was nothing to not like. On an emotional scale, we talked this to death already. It's there. It's all there. With a few tracks that fall on the lighter side of emotion, there's a strong emotional arc here, and it's powerful. It's palpable, especially in the lyrics. I mean, just some of the lines that Steve cited that like were a gut punch before the song even really kicks up, I mean, that's powerful. And... You know, everything else has kind of been said. I, You know, there was a lull in the middle, and it's by far not a perfect record, but I have to rate it above the Paper Chase at least, uh, and albums of the like that I thought had a message and conveyed it, but I didn't really enjoy because there is a personal enjoyment here that hikes it up and an emotional connection personally that, as we know, makes me hike things up. So I'm above John here. I think that... I know that the upper echelon 4.5 to 5 are very specific ilk, especially for me. And I think it falls just shy of that. I think that if there were more inventiveness within this 90s throwback, more of the electronic tones that he used, if he used more of that electronic tone work, I feel like that would have pushed it to that next level because it was interesting in the songs he featured it in. And mm-hmm. we always noticed it. Like right away, it was like, ooh, something different. So, And for me, that thing is more clarinet. <laughs> Always more clarinet. So I think for this al- for me, this album is a solid 4.4. It approaches 4.5 territory, and there are hints at it, but I- it's too emotionally impactful for me to ignore how incredible this album is on a level of emotional connectivity. So for me, it's a 4.4. Yeah. And despite my being the lowest of the batch in, in, in this particular review, I, I want to stress that I really did enjoy this album on a first listen. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. This had many elements of genres that I enjoy. Because despite my occasional aversion to Scott and Punk, frankly, this really leaned more indie at the time. And I was a huge indie fan. And even most of those indie uh, tracks that really, really got me, even back in the day, were always born right out of Scott and Punk simultaneously. So they, they exist right right just... Uh, right across the tracks, you know, five feet away, but maybe on different planes. And I think he channeled more into that. Uh, he, was, he, he strove to be relatable, and he succeeded. Yeah. I think that also it's important to note here that we talked a lot about the 90s and 2000s and that there was this kind of similar overlap in the sound here. But we have to remember those de- two decades are actually quite different sound-wise. There is overlap in bands, you know, bands like Blink-182, Sum 41, Weezer. They all progressed through those times and kept things similar-ish. But the decades themselves have very distinct personality traits and very distinct sound differences. It's the case of it being in recent memory. Yeah. I mean, anyone probably discussing this, you know, in a semi-intelligent fashion is probably at least old enough to have remembered a, a dosage of the 90s or to have gotten enough of a heap of it by the time they were in the 2000s such that, that, that those records were still plentiful um, and were being in, in, played in circulation. So we tend to look back at it as being just a, a bit of a blend. Well, we were looking at 2000s albums at the same time that we were looking back at 1990s albums. So when we think of alt-rock, we tend to think of the two decades together. But what were the true advances and and maybe a more uh, astute conversation can be had on the on the on the topic perhaps in 10 to 20 years but i would like to see 
where we're gauging this as of 2015. We're starting to get far enough away that we can perceive those exact differences. Well, one of my favorite things that's becoming something of a trend, though it's still not super popular, is the sort of resurgence from the 50s to 70s, what happened with rock and roll during that time, and that was the introduction of a lot of orchestral work, a lot of outside-the-box instrumentation. When punk and alt was really big during the 90s and even towards the later 80s, that had gone by the wayside. You, you wouldn't find a violinist or even a, or a quartet or something like that working on a alt-rock album. Not and too often. Of course, from our perspective, since you brought it up, you know, to go back in time to 1970, from our perspective, we would think, you know, to not notice the uh, music advances between 1960 and 1970 would be blind to the world, essentially. But through the eyes of the time, you know, considering that you live it, if it happens more gradually, perhaps it's more imperceptible. And also about what John's saying is how that was kind of not there in the 90s. One of our favorite go-to tracks when we first started this, a song called Affection by... Um, um, uh, the All-American Rejects. There we go. I couldn't Episode get there. Episode 8. Kids in the Street. Kids in the Street. My favorite album of that year. Still one of my favorite albums we've reviewed. The thing about that song that really made it stand out, and they're a band who really got their footing in the 2000s, is the orchestration in that track. It feels like a ballroom dance. It has those instruments. It, it felt very classic. And I think that that really shows that the John's reference to that resurgence in the 2000s that kind of was void in the, in the 90s. It was also uh, in Circle in the Square by the Flowbots episode... Oh, that was episode 10. Wow, where, early references today. Yeah, where uh, the main guitarist was a violinist, or a violist, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, which was kind of a great thing that your lead guitar is a viola. That's, that's just really taking the orchestra and infusing it within the rock hip-hop sound they were doing. No, I think you're on the right track, and that, that, that is probably what I would put forth as the single uh, greatest um, advancement for those tenure period. It's not to say that it was not being done in the 90s, but it does seem that with the advent of the internet um, and there being much more of a fluid like connection between these different themes and where it seems as if it's, it's less likely as of the 2000s that genres, genres would exist in like completely separate families and the families don't discuss like the Capulets and the Montagues they just don't talk to each other well in the internet era that's not going to be so much true instead you're going to get influences you're going to interbreed hence you're going to want to bring in little elements from the other side of the fence and a lot of that happened from rock that used to be just plain rock didn't like their classical influence all of a sudden want to bring it in in a big way well, also, the thing to remember in the 90s is the bigger the bigger interminglings were just other genres, and they were quick to be classified as other genres. I mean, think about ska. You're using classical instruments in there, all those horns. I mean, you would consider them to be an orchestra, but... Or jazz. And that was, an, and that was kind of like an early... From, yeah. an early uh, well, that, it's simply dis discovering the fact that there are more, you know, acoustic uh, instruments in your palette at your disposal. Obviously, is the first step. All you need to do is know they exist and then perceive a way in which they can actually be implemented. Ska was quick to discover that. But also, that's because Ska's born out of, you know, uh, Jamaican rhythm. So then from Jamaica, of course, they would incorporate their own palette of instruments. And then from there, it just developed on its own path. But the point I was trying to make is that that was quick to be genrefied. Like, th they developed this and then they threw a genre on it whereas 
bands like All American Rejects and a lot of other pop bands that dabble in multi-genres, nobody's quick to slap a label on that. They just kind of go, oh, they're dabbling in this or they're yeah, dabbling so in that. Punk's, punk meets reggae meets saxophones. Right. <laughs> Which seems bizarre, but sometimes all it just takes is that spike. One other thing that's really fun about uh, being in this computer age is the, well, the the offbeats, the people doing their own versions of popular songs. One of my favorite YouTube artists is Walk Off the Earth. Yeah. They do Someone I Used to Know, great cover of Someone I Used to Know. They do Trouble. I like that song when they do a full acoustic with uh, Korean uh, FX doing beatbox with it. It's all acoustic. It's uh, much preferable to me than the original song. And but it's see, just their take on it. To me, you just entered into something that I feel as a similarity between the two decades as opposed to a contrast. Covers and doing covers in your own rendition is something that is not terribly novel. That has pretty much always been true for every genre who simply has parents. As long as you have parents, as long as you have music that you may have grown up with, despite the fact that you are immersed yourself in a different genre environment, you're going to probably want to make those references. And I don't believe that, apart from the internet, which is the only reason why that stuff may be a little bit more available to to us now, because ever since 2005, you can just pop on YouTube and search a, a given song, and you'll probably be met with the original song, plus five or six covers, plus a... a uh, a million amateur versions in addition but in the 90s it was still being done it's just you had to be in that in that stage and that's exactly what i was getting at the just the availability of seeing songs being done in different rendition the, the variety you're open to nowadays gives better inspiration for creating music when you see pop becoming hip-hop when you see hip-hop becoming rock it wasn't one or two songs or maybe in a a band would release a full cover album. And on, honestly, nine times out of ten, those sort of things just pan. Except for, now, of course, rap rock, which was fairly, you know, thick back in the 90s. Uh, the, the thing is, they always happen in instances, right? And then usually if that stuck, then they, well, all right, now we're on a single track with that one thing. But are you going to break that into something else? I don't know. In, in fact, we discussed the fact that rap rock kind of died. I mean, it didn't die, it evolved. It became something else. And the reality is the, diff the strongest difference I feel between the 90s and the 2000s is like I said before, the 90s kind of, you became a genre and that was it. Whereas in the 2000s, people were a lot more open to dabble and it was you weren't immediately classified as something. Like, there's stuff that Schaefer the Dark Lord, MC Frontalot, MC Lars, all these nerdcore artists that I really like would do that would just be classified as rap rock. MC Lars is heavily punk influenced. He was in a punk band at one point, he said. So those influences are there. So people would have just slapped rap rock or rap punk on it but now that's it's, a good point now you think things are a little bit more uh a little bit more dicey or people are more hesitant to do it, that because artists are they live on whims it's more open to interpretation it's more open to influence influences are more prevalent and more obvious i think because we have so much more access or rather that uh, the name that sticks is the name that stays for yeah. instance in their case it was nerdcore yeah. people are going to think of that before they think of the rap of, of the rap rock influence yeah. um they're just going to think well it's really more about the subject matter and if the subject matter ends up trumping what they choose to use uh musically in their in their uh lps well then then that's just the state and then people aren't going to associate that despite the fact that you're right i do believe it's there i've heard those albums i think there is a lot of rock influence and had it been released in the early 90s i bet it would have been classified as rap rock there's also one thing that uh 
we just haven't talked about, and that is the synthesizer and the fact that technologically it's advanced so far that we were talking about, well, we couldn't really tell if this was synth or not, even today. Well, it's not, as if, the 90s, not as if the 90s were behind the times. Certainly the developments between the 70s and the 90s were probably... Uh, Huge. Probably more than maybe even the 90s to the 2000s. Not necessarily in terms of, of, uh, of computer technology, which clearly has advanced in those, in those 10 years, but um, more in the case of being able to mimic. For instance, the and whole concept... Uh, around around the idea of a sound synthesizer is that theoretically you should be able to make any sound on the face of the planet using a synthesizer which could out and out just replace every single sound out there well mimicry was still around back in the 90s it just so happened that they preferred to use it in what was easiest to do and that was still more synth sounding things today it's becoming harder and harder to tell i agree and it means that you don't have to have a violinist for that one part. You don't have to have a third guitar for that track you're recording. Yeah. Uh, with the ability to just splice record and to use robots to make music, you can do a lot more in that area. And that might be one of the best features that we're living with nowadays. That's why I think post-production has become more prevalent. In fact, that I think is, is one I would add as people focus more on that, it seems, than, uh, than the other stuff. That's, that's a big element today, post-production. In the 90s, that was an element that wasn't the whole kit and caboodle. Now you can work a whole genre just around that. Well, that's also because of access. Sampling is so much easier to do now. Everyone can download Audacity. It's free and it's easy to use for mixing and for uh, editing. I, I'm still trying to figure it out. But my point is, is that that access, of course, changed things. In the 90s, people didn't really sample a lot because A, it was something that was mostly only done in hip-hop and was unheard of in a lot of other genres. And, and 56K modems couldn't download this stuff very easily. The, the reality was, unless you had a Mac, mixing that kind of mixing was very difficult to do. So it was easier to just capture the raw instruments. Whereas now why rappers have full instrumentation and why some rockers have just beat work it's you can you have this access to everything i'm almost. glad you mentioned that and that's uh because you brought up max and the fact that max really were, were were dominating the um uh the home studio as it were from the 90s into the early 2000s i had a few professors who only used software on max because it really wasn't available on windows windows was not a platform it was a platform for the office it was not a platform for, for engineering of any for kind engineering. no and, and I think that was a big difference, too, whereas now you can kind of get engineering on any platform you want, even a freaking iPad. I mean, yep. yeah, well, Apple still kind of dominates, but they don't have the lion's share anymore. It's, it's, everything's just starting to work together. I think that's the best part of living now instead of 25 years ago, listening to music now instead of 25 years ago. There's just the ability to work so much more stuff, different aspects of... Well, there's this guy out in Germany that is an mean cellist. I met him once. He wants to do a section for my song. Now we can talk over Skype for a little bit. He can record a WAV file and send it to me, and boom, I got it in my song now. And I know some uh, artists who, as of the time, actually tried to do the same thing, but you know how they had to do it? Mailing tapes. Yeah, there you go. Whereas an, uh, an, a band that exemplifies what John's talking about is a band that allows us to use one of their songs as a theme, Malibu Shark Attack, which is Tribe One the nerdcore rapper who I've mentioned at length, and um, his partner, whose name I'm forgetting, they work together, and he lives in Ireland, Dublin, and, and um, Tribe One lives in Atlanta. 
And they didn't meet until they toured together in Dublin. They never met in person. They worked together online. They mixed and recorded the whole album separately and put it together. And it's fantastic. And to clarify, that's not the theme on Crash Course no, Podcast. Yes. On this series, it's uh, the theme on, on Crash Course Autographs. Autographs, which they were so gracious enough to let us use. Um, the Yo! Into New York is the song. But all of their songs, like, all of it's done at distance. I mean, Paul and Storm, the comedy duo slash nerd rockers they don't live anywhere near each other they only are together when they're on tour all of their album working is over skype and sending recordings back and forth it's something that can be done so easily now that was impossible in the 90s it's another case uh was uh, the band menomina uh yes. the band menomina was separate all of their band members were separate uh, then it's another early reference in fact we reviewed them back in episode 12 and all of their band members were like scattered throughout the country for a while but they still managed it they would pass off one track to the next to the next and just gradually build up as long as you have a system a compositional system worked out um and i imagine there's still a lot of exchange and going back and forth before it's finally a finished product. It's not just like a single, you know, it has, it stops by every single uh, every single performer and then all of a sudden it's done. It probably has to be sent back if something doesn't quite jive well. It seems to me to be incredibly complex. I'm sure live setting would always be preferred. But as we become more virtual, that will probably change. And one final thing, which we actually talked about in previous discussions, is that the product of a material gets to the people who want to hear it. We start talking about like nerdcore, nerd rock, sort of very niche genres, or one of my favorite niche genres, whiz rock. Well, that's Harry Potter rock and roll and folk music. It gets to the Harry Potter fans because, well, it can be found. You want math rock, one of my favorite weird genres that's kind of out of left field, you just gotta look for it. You can find it. This is the sort of stuff that, well, back in the 90s, you had radio. You had television shows, and you had stations that used to be dedicated to music. The nerdiest thing you could find on the radio back in the 90s was Weird Al. He was kind of transcendent upon everything because he parodied everything that was popular. But unless you were doing that, it was really hard to get above, to get to a niche. He was probably the nichiest artist with the widest appeal back then, since the 80s even, because he had that access of copying something that was already popular. Uh, I think the nichiest artist was probably Frederick Nietzsche. <laughs> anyway. Okay, I'll exit that to go to the one final question that I think is plaguing us. What do you think we've lost since the 90s? We've gained a lot. It seems that we've covered that. What have we lost? Since the 90s, I don't really think we've lost too much. It's I, all been just uphill? From the, the 90s, yes. From previous generations, I think we lost a little bit of the soul of music as a whole. I mean, but, I, I mean, just considering like we're talking 70s, around, around niches... I, I, I do believe that it's it's possible in the internet era. Of course, it can sort of promise immortality for a lot of these things, but then a lot of things exist and thrive within their confines. Not everything should be fused. Or their old maxim, well, the idea that, and we talked about this several times, if everything just is constantly crossed over, will we just blend our music together, much like we'll one day blend our races together? I think that the biggest problem and the thing that we've lost since the 90s is this idea of just when you when you had an album that you went out of your way to get and you became a fan of that fandom was kind of a camaraderie it was you were pulled together by this this fanhood because fan clubs were relevant like that's the way you you had to go meet somebody in person to discuss your love of corn 
or Green Day or whatever the band was that was popular in the 90s. Whereas in the 2000s and on, it becomes more, you know... Follow them on Twitter and boom, you have instantly 1,500 other fans. But no, but it's not even that. That's not even the point I'm getting to. The point is it becomes fan obsession and there's almost a harsher criticism of fandoms, you know, whereas you're overly critical of people who like certain things. And while some of it I feel is justified, I feel like most of the time it's just people being complainy and trolly on the internet. Well, what I gather also from your comment, I do think that's elemental in the uh, concept of niche genres, but also in niche fandom, is that, well, you do have a stronger fan base if, for instance, the lack of the ease of the internet would perhaps push forth more um, a stronger fan base, something more dedicated than perhaps the very uh, wishwashy. Yes, wishwashy fandom that we have today. Yeah, the it's flip very, on very from easy to, sit, yeah. to sit just in your room and then just sort of go through forums and say I'm a fan, and then you know it, it really keeps you removed. I think from your fans, it used to be a much closer community. If, if that's what I gather you're explaining. More or less, yeah. There is one thing I'm happy we lost, and that is sort of the stereotype fans. If we want to talk about fans for a minute, there. Being a white guy and liking rap is not a faux pas anymore. Being That's true. If you into least... nerdy or metal or or punk rock is not a faux pas in certain groups. Because people's musical tastes tend to be a lot more blended nowadays, yeah, even people who say that they don't like rap might have one or two rap songs. Even people who really don't listen to indie are going to have a couple of those on their iPads as well. It's just... I think the, the whole concept in, in today, the most common music library you have is not on your shelves, but in your hard drive. Yeah. And when you look at it just at a glance, it's almost impossible to think that that could be just one thing. Meanwhile, you might have once been really, really proud of your jazz collection. Well, you still can be, but is that all that's there? I mean, if you're not really going to have to hike out to record stores that are are uh, proficient in that one particular area, then it's more likely you're going to be as, as broad as you can be. this kind of melting pot of music has given way to an accessibility and this ability to mix and match your tastes. You don't have to just like, I don't really think I can even say I don't like country anymore because I found country songs that I really like because we have the access to find those things that our tastes lead us to. So I think in essence, it's kind of one of the greatest things that we've gotten. Well, like I said today, I kind of fell out of love with punk, but uh, this might really be back in if I could find similar artists again. Yeah, no, it does seem like people are trying to re... Well, of course, you mentioned the whole 30-year rule in the past few weeks. Well, as, as we've related to things from the 80s, well, mm, We're that, getting closer that's going to be the 90s. The 90s yeah. Yeah, there you go. Uh, as it, we it, get older. It might be... Shut up, I'm not getting older. Um, I'm looking at the wrong end of 30 right now. <laughs> there's a right... Never mind. Um, <laughs> yeah, when you're 20. <laughs> you're, uh, never mind. John, uh, uh, Steve, rather, why don't you give us our spam mail the week before I wrap oh, this up? Oh, I'd be glad to. Hello to all. How is the whole thing? I think everyone is getting more from this website, and your views are fastidious in favor of new visitors. From a YouTube video. The video itself? Yeah, like a full-on link is listed as the author. Did you? I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to sort of Click lead our listeners down this dark path, but if you're curious, because I haven't actually clicked it myself... It's youtube.com slash watch, question mark, V equals T-O-5-A-B-H-0-X-4-2-S. If you actually go through to that link, please post in the comments below the post what the hell you found. 
Oh, oh and the T oh and two T O is lowercase, A is lowercase, and S is lowercase. The rest are caps. Um oh and the V is lowercase. I think that matters. because uh, it yeah. might, yeah. It might actually For matter. For the links, I think it matters. And do matter. us a favor and comment them back. Just comment back at them. Yeah. Yeah. I would love that. Get a little bit of a dialogue. It actually would on. help them, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> he, they um, asked how sour we are. We're doing good. And and you know, we're fastidious. I like that. I it's like big word for a computer. That's yes. um, not. No, it's not big. The computers know all the words. I want to take a moment again They're to thank Star F, um, who recommended this album. I think we got a lot out of it, so thank you for that. I hope you enjoy our review of it as much as we enjoyed reviewing it. Um, I'm excited to announce. I think I've mentioned before our guests for June. So our guests for June are two two friends of mine. Um, both cartoonists, both with their own very successful web comics. Ed Reynolds, who's the creator of Fermented Zen, which is fermentedzen.com. And then Chuck Collins, the creator of Bounce, which is bouncecomics.tumblr.com. And they're both very prolific uh, animators. They do great story arcs. They're great writers. And they're bringing us <laughs> their album choices. Very interesting. And it doesn't speak too far from where their interests lie. So. They're bringing us John Carpenter's Lost Themes. Yes, John Carpenter has put out an album called Lost Themes. Um, I have not heard it. I know nothing about it other than it is an original work by John Carpenter. It also features his son. It's all electronic. I don't think there are any actual instruments. Pre-featuring uh, John Carpenter's son? Yes. Well, you did mention uh, this to me before uh, we began recording, and it kind of jogged my memory. I mean, first of all, I was shocked just to hear, wait, wait John, John Carpenter is a, is a composer? But then, as I think back to it, I did, I think, once hear that as both for being the director of uh, The Thing back in 1982, I believe he did actually compose that very, very dark soundtrack. It's why I it's... don't know that for certain, but I think, that, I don't know, something a bell is ringing. I would imagine that would be why it's always referred to as John Carpenter's thing, because I think think that's the exact title i think he presented kind well, of well also Kendrick because Poodle. also because the distinction had to be made from the 1950s version i believe oh that's yeah. that's probably true as well but anyway so those two guys are coming on i'm very excited about it both comics are really great go check them out um shout out to ed for also giving us a bump on his website he features crash chords in the ad link we have both of those pages in our link dump um, but I'm excited to bring them on. They're they're very they're they're very very much into animation, into and into music. Um, uh, Chuck is a very well known metalhead. Um, Ed kind of veers more towards classic rock and some old school stuff. They're both really great guys, and I'm interested to have them both on. And we're gonna get to talk about horror movies. Yes. Or horror-esque sort of action films. Because I can't imagine this album would be filled with puppies and sunflowers. Well, I don't know. This is the same guy that did Halloween, like 1 through 30, or however many they've been. Escape from New York, which was almost like Halloween, but an action film. He's done some, like, cult classics, so we're going to be talking about that, too. John Carpenter's Fuzzy Wuzzy Was a Bear. <laughs> I would go see that movie. I, I would. I would pee myself watching that movie. You know that. <laughs> That's probably true. Um, so There's a twist. We look forward to that next week. Um, I'll also, probably in that episode, talk more for our guests for July, who, we are, who I won't tease now. But, um, yeah, so tune in next week for that. And remember, music is life. And, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. 
To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.